0: Tegan, it's the new year. Have you worked a little more on the
1: resolutions? Happy new year, Chris. Thank you. You too. You have? Yes. Oh, absolutely. My resolution is to put together the best trial balloon today that we can. And then after that, I'll see if I can keep it for the next week of the new year. Okay. So each week. that's That's a one week at a time the gyms across America are just packed today. See if they're still packed next week.
0: They are packed with Americans ready to break their resolutions in the next week or two, whereas you are simultaneously avoiding the gym and are making a resolution that you will be able to keep. So that's a trade-off. What
1: about getting rid of this cold of yours? Is that one of your resolutions? That is definitely one of my resolutions and uh, the only reason I did not hit the gym today is I don't feel so great. That's my excuse for January 2nd as we're (laughs) recording this. Yeah,
0: we all have ongoing excuses to avoid the gym. Hope that you feel better. And as you mentioned, we are recording early. This is a special pre-recorded mailbag episode. There's a little bit of New Year travel going on that will keep us from being able to record on our normal time this week. However, next week, we will be back with a normally scheduled conversation just in time for the January 15th MLK Day Iowa Caucus. So looking forward to all of that. Let's dig in because we've got quite a number of emails that came in. Thank you all for sending them, and apologies for anyone who sent in an email that we are not able to get to. Topic number one, a number of folks emailed about the 14th Amendment, Colorado, Maine, and Trump, including, we did get one from friend of the pod, Casper in Copenhagen. Happy New Year to Casper and all of our friends over there. Samantha Kaye, emailed, what's going on with these states that are saying Trump can't participate in the primary? Is he still going to be on the ballot in those places in November? Is there any precedent at all with states blocking someone from running for president, whatever that means? And then Jordan G. emailed, I was curious if anyone has pointed out this irony. Trump rose to political prominence by leading the racist birther movement against President Obama, which sought to declare the president ineligible from holding office based on the lie that he was born in Kenya rather than America. Then in 2016, Trump questioned the eligibility of his top rival in the GOP primary, Senator Ted Cruz, who was undeniably born in Canada. So Trump has not hesitated to seek out having his political opponents declared ineligible from holding office without any high threshold of a criminal conviction or anything, just by having the courts make that ruling. And now he's been declared ineligible by Colorado's state Supreme Court. Our system allows the courts on their own to interpret the Constitution when deciding eligibility for office. Trump wanted this in regards to Obama and Cruz, yet Trump is pretending it's an egregious abuse of power when applied to him. Thank you so much for everything you do to keep us informed. Thank you, Jordan, for that kind note. And then just a couple hours later, Jordan wrote back and said, I just saw David Frum's article, which you had posted in Political Wire, which was basically identical to my email from earlier today. So please disregard. I swear I didn't plagiarize, LOL. And in fact, he did not. Uh, We know, Jordan, we have the timestamp from your email. So Tegan, 14th Amendment." Do you know, is there any precedent at all with states blocking someone from running for president? Why don't you take either that or take
1: this other point that Jordan made? So the question from Samantha is a good one in terms of whether this has happened at all in the past. And it's happened for some third-party independent candidates who were not eligible under the constitution to run for president. It is not, to my knowledge, ever happened with a major party candidate. And that's what makes this an interesting situation and obviously historically unique because Trump is not just a major party candidate. He is a former president and he is the leading contender for the Republican nomination by a lot. He's far, far ahead in the polls, obviously, at this point. In response to Samantha's earlier question about whether he could be kept off the primary ballot, but he'd still be on the general election ballot, what's happening right now is these are all test cases. And so Trump is on the primary ballot. Those are the cases the courts have to rule on right now. But they're test cases, and they are all going to end up at the Supreme Court, it seems. The Trump campaign has indicated that they will appeal this week. The Colorado and Maine decisions, knocking him off the ballot in those states. There are many other cases percolating around the country in various states brought by various voters trying to keep Trump off the ballot. But that leads us into what Jordan's questions were, which is the hypocrisy that we're seeing in politics that Trump once wanted to keep Obama off the ballot for various reasons. And now he is decrying the fact that Democrats are trying to push to keep him off the ballot in 2024. One of those things where no one is shocked by hypocrisy in politics anymore, but it's a good point anyway to bring up. The point that I'd like to make about all of these 14th Amendment cases is when you read section three of the 14th Amendment, on one reading, it seems clear. If you engage in insurrection, you can't be a candidate for office. But if you read it a little deeper, and granted, I'm not a lawyer, but if you read it word by word, you realize that this amendment does not actually mention the president of the United States. It does mention senators. It does mention members of Congress. It does not mention the president. It mentions just a generic official And one would think that if this amendment was intended to go after the highest elected official in our country, the president of the United States, or someone running for president of the United States, that that would be explicitly stated, and for some reason it is not. It's also interesting that the triggering event for this amendment is the fact that the candidate must have engaged in insurrection. Well, a lot of us think that Donald Trump did in fact do that on January 6, 2021, but he's not been found guilty of that by any court. And so is that necessary before you invoke this amendment? Does a court need to find him guilty of taking part in an insurrection before you can trigger this amendment? It's not clear and the Supreme Court will soon weigh in on this you know, in the coming weeks that they'll have to weigh in one way or another. But I do think just as Donald Trump was arguing about keeping Obama off the ballot and Democrats were taking this position, well, it's ridiculous. He doesn't have any facts. It's not clear. The fact that Obama was on the ballot and was then put before the American people in a vote seems to be the best way to kind of dismiss many of these vague attempts to use ulterior means to keep someone off of the ballot. I'd rather live in a country where the courts did not decide these things and where the voters decided these things. And particularly when it's vague like this, David Axelrod, who was Obama's campaign manager in that first campaign, he came out and said, look, quite reasonably, if Donald Trump is knocked off the ballot by the Supreme Court, it's going to tear this country in half. And so when you talk about what is good for democracy or not, I don't really think that would be good for democracy. I don't think that Democrats should look to the courts to taking Donald Trump off the ballot, you know, look to the courts to find Donald Trump guilty of criminal behavior But I do not think that this is probably the right way to deal with Donald Trump. And I think Democrats are just going to have to buckle down and beat him at the polls in November.
0: So I hear you on this, and there's some areas where I'm not so sure that I agree, but I'd like to point out where some of the things that I have been reading or come across have been putting forth some really interesting arguments. First of all, on this whole question of does section three of the 14th Amendment hold and would it hold in the sense of keeping somebody like Trump off the ballot, I posted this week in the newsletter an article called The Sweep and Force of Section Three. And this came to my attention from Timothy Snyder's substack. He's the Yale professor, wrote the book On Tyranny, and he's got a really interesting substack. His words were, the very best text I have read on the topic of Trump's eligibility for office, the one that initiated this discussion at a level no one else has yet attained, was written by the legal scholars William Baud and Michael Stokes Paulson. Though I do not know them, I will say with some confidence that these men are not registered Democrats and I put in a link to the study, and I believe, at least in the case of Baud, he's from the University of Chicago Law School. I believe that he is on the conservative side of things. I don't know anything about Michael Stokes. Paulson, I believe he is as well. We'll include a link to this in the show notes, but they go through and make four points as to why a look at Section 3 of the 14th Amendment shows that it should hold in these cases, and it takes on many of these arguments about is this enforceable today and not just in the Civil War? Does it require additional action from Congress? They don't think that it does, that it would satisfy or supersede any prior constitutional rules, and in particular, that it disqualifies Trump and potentially many others because of their participation in the attempted overthrow of the 2020 presidential election. Secondly, Snyder raised in a separate post a really interesting point, which you were just addressing in your discussion around Axelrod. And, you know, a lot of people reasonably feel like, wait, the choosing of our candidates should not be done by the court. In a best case, this would be done at the ballot box, that half the nation's going to be furious if he gets pulled off by the courts and furious or worse if he gets pulled off the ballot and which snyder writes is in this essay i address the anti-constitutional discourse that appears in the media that the constitution should be displaced by the fears of people who appear on television this form of opposition to the constitution poses as expertise it takes the form of advice to the court find some way to allow Trump to be on the ballot because otherwise people will be upset. Because we are used to hearing endless conversations about politics on television, where everyone seems to be a political advisor, it can seem normal to reduce sections of the Constitution to talking points. But we must pause and consider. In fact, rejecting the legal order in favor of what seems to be politically safe at a given moment is just about the most dangerous move that can be made. It amounts to advocating that we shift from constitutional government to an insurrectionary regime. And if you've followed Snyder, this is what he focuses on is how constitutional governments get overthrown. To continue with Snyder's point, indeed, it amounts to participating in that shift while not taking responsibility for doing so. Let me try to spell this out. In advising the court to keep Trump on the ballot, political commentators elevate their own fears about others' resentment above the Constitution. But the very reason we have a Constitution is to handle fear and resentment. To become a public champion of your own fears and others' resentments is to support the insurrectionary regime. That's a pretty aggressive statement. The purpose of the insurrection clause in the Constitution is not to encourage insurrections. If we publicly say that the Supreme Court should disregard it because we fear insurrections, we are making insurrections more likely. We are telling Americans that to undermine constitutional rule, they must only intimate that they might be violent. To advocate pitchfork rulings is to endorse regime change. To issue pitchfork rulings is to announce regime change. So I'm not suggesting that you in particular are saying that the Supreme Court should disregard this because you fear an insurrection, but I do think that that is part of what some folks are saying. This point I found really interesting because it was one of the prime arguments that I've seen many reasonable people feel and have felt that just what you pointed out, Axelrod had said, that it's not great. We don't want courts choosing who's on a ballot and who's not. This is a fairly interesting argument against that, saying that, well, no, in fact, it's the Constitution that makes that judgment, and it's the courts that interpret the Constitution. And if we start asking the courts not to interpret the
1: Constitution, then we might be finding ourselves up for a bigger problem. Chris, this is where lawyers drive me crazy. Timothy Schneider is a lawyer. He is making an argument with a huge assumption up front that the 14th Amendment is clear. It is not clear. It is vague. And so if you are going to be making a decision in interpreting a vague clause in the Constitution, which determines who might be able to run for president of the United States for half the country or roughly half the country, someone who's quite popular. I don't think that we're looking for a legal argument here when this is vague. And the point that it's vague, I get it. It was written many, many years ago. It does not necessarily have to be clear. But when the objective is to protect our democracy, I do not think that we should allow lawyers to make assumptions on certain amendments, which any lay reader can read, and you can determine for yourself that it's not that clear or that the triggering event is not that clear. Donald Trump, I'm, I'm no defender of Donald Trump, but he has not even been charged with inciting insurrection at this point. He's been charged with 91 other criminal counts, but he has not been charged with what is the triggering event in the 14th Amendment the fact that it's vague and does not reference a candidate for president of the united states i don't know if i want to leave that to a bunch of politically appointed judges on the supreme court to decide that one way or another so i don't think it's a good argument i think that if we're interested in protecting democracy which i think we all should then i think the best way to protect democracy is have the votes counted at the ballot box and select our next president in november
0: so i would say one I love the discussion of what is the political reality versus the legal reality. You and I have stated from the start, that's one of the core reasons why we do this podcast is because there are legal reasons why things happen. There are financial reasons why things happen. There are technical and technological reasons why things happen, and there are political reasons why things happen. And this is a conversation, usually, about the political reasons why things happen. So I agree with that dichotomy. But here's where I would differ or at least push back on what you're saying. First is the discussion about that he has not been convicted, that Trump has not been convicted. I just am waiting for the textualists to identify where in the 14th Amendment it says that one must have been convicted or charged of insurrection. It doesn't say that. Exactly. So you're making my point. It's vague. Oh, 100% it's vague, but it does not literally say that the person needs to have been charged or convicted. And so therefore it is vague and therefore it does leave it open to that interpretation. My point is we have a generation at least of textualists who I believe simultaneously say, we must go literally by what is written in the constitution and who may also make the argument, well, he has not been charged and has not been convicted. And I'm sorry, that's not literally in the Constitution. It doesn't say that they have to have been. It's vague. So it's up to the judgment of whoever the decision maker is. The second thought that I have on what you were saying is that while you're arguing, and again, I like this argument. I agree with the heart of this argument that this is a political or should be a political discussion and not just a legal discussion. It feels to me like everyone, David Axelrod, all the commentators, the main secretary of state, the Colorado Supreme Court, everyone is looking for a legal argument on this and a legal decision on this and is asking for the US Supreme Court to get involved. So while we're saying that the politics of this, it's really bad politically speaking to have a decision where 50% ish of the electorate are going to feel that they've been disenfranchised. Yeah, no doubt. It's horrendous. I mean, that's a really dangerous problematic situation. Most people do seem to be looking for a legal solution to this, and they want the Supreme Court to give that law.
1: That's fine that they want that, but I don't think it's going to give them the satisfaction that they're seeking. Democrats have done this for 50, 60 years, where they look to the courts to enforce various social justice, civil rights uh, measures, Abortion. abortion, when they would be much better served to simply gather the votes and vote these in as law and codify what they want for our society and law rather than looking to the courts. But For decades, the courts were the easier way. And now I think looking at this and they're scared, they're scared of Trump and that they would like to do this. But I do think the best thing for our country is to have this settled at the ballot box. Now, that's not to say that Donald Trump is going to lose the 2024 election and accept the results, but the same is true. If you want the courts to decide this situation, do you think Donald Trump is going to be gracious like Al Gore was in 2000 when he accepted a Supreme Court decision on the recount in Florida called George W. Bush my president? He's not going to be. So if the Supreme Court were somehow, I don't think they're going to do this, but were somehow to rule against Trump and knock him off the ballots in these various states, you know that Donald Trump's not going to say, oh, the Supreme Court has weighed in and that's the case. He's probably going to lead an insurrection. It's going to lead to political violence. So much of our system relies on good, honest men and women working together. And unfortunately, the Trump years have shown what happens when we don't have that to be the case. The same thing was true with the impeachments of Donald Trump. As much as these lawyers would love to make this a legal issue, it's not. It's a political issue. Impeachment is a political mechanism. Even though on the legal basis of the charges against Donald Trump and those two impeachments, I would have voted to convict him in both cases. You know, at the end of the day, the judgment was political. Does that mean we have to accept it because it was done in a legal framework? We don't. We know it was a political situation. That is why Republicans are right now trying to push to impeach Joe Biden. There are no charges against Joe Biden, yet they're still pushing to impeach him because it's all about politics. That's where we are in this country. And I really think that the only way to solve this is to actually do the hard work, get the votes and fight this off in the ballot box.
0: No doubt a political solution would in theory be fantastic. It is right now going through the legal system. There is a question about interpreting the Constitution. That is definitionally a legal question. It's also a political question, no doubt. Is your argument that the courts should absolve themselves from the legal responsibility and say to America, a political decision needs to be made here. We are not going to weigh in, or the amendment is too vague for XYZ reasons. We aren't in a position to enforce this. This needs to be a political decision.
1: I think that's one of the possible outcomes for sure. You can bet that John Roberts is not interested in making this a yes or no question. He's looking to weigh in on specifics of the 14th Amendment, some of these vague situations that I've already mentioned. You know, what's interesting is just as we're recording this, there's another case that has now gone to the courts. There's a lawsuit that has been filed against Congressman Scott Perry, the conservative from Pennsylvania, who was intimately involved in the events leading up to January 6th. His cell phone was seized by the FBI. There's now a lawsuit to knock him off the ballot under the 14th Amendment. And that's interesting because members of Congress, they're mentioned specifically in that clause that's under discussion here. So there will be other cases about the 14th Amendment other than Donald Trump, but we'll watch this play itself out. I would be wary thinking that some grand solution is going to come from the courts on this. I agree. I think it's likely that the Supreme Court will
0: try to find a way to push this back to become a political solution. One can't help but recall Senator McConnell saying that he couldn't vote for impeachment because the courts had not weighed in. Trump had not been charged. He couldn't take a political decision because there had not been a legal decision or a legal ruling on the status. And it's just each branch kicking the ball into the other court, no pun intended on court, but can't help but think about uh, McConnell, who had the exact opposite excuse, however many uh, years ago.
1: Imagine that hypocrisy on politics.
0: Next thing you'll tell me is there's gambling going on. Exactly. And to close out this discussion on the 14th Amendment, and by the way, I think that we should, unless you object, hold some of the mailbag questions that we have for this episode This discussion on the 14th Amendment, I think, has been a good one, but also gives us the room to take those other questions and uh, create a subsequent mailbag episode so that we don't overwhelm listeners with just one episode. Are you uh, down with that? I'm down with that, Chris. Okay, then let's get down with that and get over to Copenhagen and Casper's question on the 14th Amendment can close us out, which was, Holy smokes, really looking forward to hearing you and Chris's take on the political side of the Colorado ruling. Well, careful what you asked for, Casper, but you just got that. But then Casper asks, did Trump just secure his election? I'm assuming there's no chance at all that the Supreme Court won't overturn the ruling. Casper is bringing together a little bit of the legal
1: but then really homing in on the political. Did Trump just secure his election? Well, I won't go that far, but I think Casper's on to something here, which is that, you know, none of these so-called legal questions are decided in a vacuum and there is politics there. Just as we've seen with Donald Trump being indicted four times, each time he was indicted, it seemed that his lead in the Republican primary grew. It has not heard him so far in matchups, at least in polls with Joe Biden. It has increased the enthusiasm of his supporters. Every time he's attacked, Trump plays the victim card on these criminal indictments. The fact that there are efforts now to block Trump from the ballot on the presidential election to prevent people from voting for him, it plays right into his hands. And so he is going to use these cases as long as they go on. He is going to use these cases to rally his base, to prove to his supporters that the system is rotten to the core, that they're the ones trying to hurt our democracy because they're trying to take him off the ballot through ulterior means. I think it's extremely dangerous. And that's one reason why I hope the Supreme Court will weigh in on this question as soon as possible. Because if this drags into the spring and into the summer and it's not decided, that's only going to benefit Donald Trump. It's not helping Democrats at all, even though there is some hope out there that they hope that they can get him knocked off the ballot. I know that, you know, one of my favorite podcasts
0: is the Revolutions podcast by Mike Duncan. I am in the middle of the end of (laughs) the Russian revolution. That was the last one that he did, and I held off on the back half until the point where I could binge listen, and I'm now coming towards the end of it, which brings great sadness. So Mike, if you're listening, please, uh, we're, we're all waiting for your next efforts. The examples throughout history of, this is to your point, of actions that the Democrats are taking, actions that the courts might or might not take, and yet despite any of those actions that the person coming at it from the outside who has very, very clear slogans, simple slogans, and where many of those slogans have to do and arguments have to do with the system being rigged, built up to keep in power the entrenched classes, et cetera, that the political and legal efforts to circumvent that person who is trying to run up against them, those efforts almost never work. That's aligned with the argument that you just made. It aligns with Casper's question. And I just can't tell you how every time I listen to yet another circumstance in history, it's like it is being played again and again and again. And there's almost literally nothing that can be done about it. You're in a system where the levers of power start to shift. If that person has political power and has Popular support behind them, and then ultimately
1: other types of support. But if they have political support, popular support, it is very hard to overcome. 100% agree with you. Popular support is everything in our system. And whether it's a city council in my small town in New York, or whether it's in the Congress or presidency, presidential elections, popular support is everything. That's where any elected official derives their power from. I remember sitting in the row behind US senators when I worked in the Senate early in my career, and I remember looking at each of these, mostly men at the time, Sitting on the Senate Banking Committee and they were all there. And I remember thinking they were all from somewhere else. And it's because people actually voted for them. It had nothing to do with their innate intelligence. It had nothing to do with how they carried themselves, how good a speech they gave. It's simply their power was derived that people back home in their states voted for them. And it's incredibly powerful. And Donald Trump is very powerful. And so anyone who is negating his popularity and his power, what he Doing right now is extraordinary. He is playing this system against the system in so many ways. He plays the victim card better than anybody I think we've seen in our lifetime. He rallies people every time he gets attacked. And it doesn't mean you can't attack him. It doesn't mean you can't get under his skin. It doesn't mean you can't persuade voters that there is a better choice than him. I'd think all of that is possible. But I do think that every one of these attacks helps him, at least in these early stages of the campaign, grow his. Support, solidify his support, and encourage his supporters to get out to the polls.
0: So we owe apologies to Brian H and Stuart W and Deirdre S and Sam T and John D, who is a civics teacher. We just did a civics teacher wrong. Scott A, Christian K from Wiesbaden, Germany, as well as Jason G and potentially others. We will get to your emails. Thank you so, so much for sending them in. Excellent topics that we just didn't get to today. We will do an additional mailbag in the next weeks to try to get to some of these because they're really, really great topics. We greatly appreciate it. Tegan, if there's one thing that I think we have established for
1: sure, this is going to be a wild new year. Yeah, and who knew we couldn't uh, solve the 14th Amendment issues in just a half an hour or so. We'll try better next time, Chris. Talk to you next time, Tegan.